Hey guys, Drew here, and uh, I just want to fill you in a little bit about what you're about to listen to. Uh, the next couple recordings, this one here and then the one following, were both taken from our 2020 winter retreat um, where Michael DeFazio was our guest speaker. Uh, Michael from Ozark Christian College came and spoke to us a little bit uh, about going deeper into Romans, some of the themes that we've studied a little bit, and then how to kind of engage with it on a more personal level. So uh, our first session there, Michael talked from Romans 5 about this fact that we are loved in spite of our sin. And uh, he, he spoke to us a little bit out of Romans 5, helping us to understand our identity in Christ and what it is to be loved by him. The problem was that we had some uh, technical difficulties with the recording, and uh, and we were, were unable to get that one. But that session in Romans 5 is what fed into the one you're about to listen now, which is that we are justified um, by Christ, justified by his death um, that God gave to us. So you don't have to have heard the first one for the second one to make sense. Just wanted to give you a heads up on that as we move into this session and then into the next. Hope it's helpful for you. Well, good morning, you guys. Um, I want to say one thing before we jump in, in the spirit in which we've been put by probably like literally perfect songs for what we're talking about. Uh, and as we prepare ourselves to talk a little bit more about Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, you can t- open your Bibles uh, to that place if you want. We're camping out in the same area. I do want to say one thing um, that, I mean, most of my comments, most of what I'm going to share with you, especially in these first two sessions, is rooted in one passage of Romans. I do love the rest of the book. So, uh, if you have questions about Romans, anything related to Romans, uh, you know, whether at a meal or if we're just kicking it or if people are just milling around, I want you to know, like, part of why I'm happy to be here is to help you think through any portions of this letter. Uh, so if you have a question, don't, don't feel like it's weird or don't hesitate to come chat with me about that. I'd be happy to do it. Uh, given the fact that we are um, looking again at the same text and really from a somewhat similar angle, uh, some of the reasons for that from a biblical standpoint, we, you know, we'll talk about when we get into the text but I do want to get, put, put an image in front of your face and tell you a story of an experience that this image for me represents. It's an old phone, phone of mine. You've probably had something like this happen before. Have you ever had that? Yeah, it's just painful to look at. Um, well, I learned something interesting things whenever this happened, whenever I broke my phone. So I took it to uh, this place in town that fixes screens. We got one of those typical, you know, uh, super helpful places. And I went in there. I got busted my phone. I needed a new screen, and I'm talking to the guy. And I said... Um, you know, it's funny, usually I'm really lucky. Like, I drop my phone all the time, and it never cracks. But, like, it was up on the counter, and my son, it was, I think it was a few years ago, there was, like, a Woody doll up there from Toy Story, and he pulls down the Woody doll, and down comes the phone, and crack. I'm like, this finally, it's like, I'm, I'm unlucky this time. Usually I'm so lucky. And he just laughs. He's like, ha, why are you laughing? He said, well, you're not lucky. Like, no, didn't you hear what I'm saying? Like, I drop my phone all the time, and it never breaks. Like, honestly, I probably dropped it 20 times, and it took 21 times for it to finally crack. He's like, yeah, you're not lucky. You care to explain? He said, you're breaking it every time it falls. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I know that it's broken now. You don't understand. Like, yesterday it looked perfect. He said, it looked perfect, but it wasn't. He said, I'd like to understand what it is that you're saying to me. Maybe you all know this. And he explained to me, he said, every time you drop your phone and it falls down typically on the corner of that thing, he says, that corner bends ever so slightly. 
So every time it falls, even from just a couple feet, if it's not protected well, it just bends just a little bit. And so it starts to break. You can't notice it, though, until at one point it's essentially on the verge of falling apart. So you drop it one more time, and then it, and then it hits the ground, and then the screen shatters. But really, it started breaking a long time ago. And I remember thinking, well, apparently I'm not very lucky. <laughs> but I also remember thinking, that's kind of how our hearts go. That's kind of how our lives go. That's kind of why we need to revisit some of the same texts and some of the same themes again and again. Because when it comes to these foundational truths, we get to this point where it's like, no, I understand this. Like, I've heard this. I believe this. I do believe this. I know this. Everything's fine in this category of my life. Like, this one's good. We're good. We can move on to something else. And I wonder if sometimes we think we probably have grasped some of these truths a little bit more deeply than we have. Because if you look at our lives, everything looks fairly well, but if one thing were to be pulled out from underneath us, or if one thing were to go wrong, or if we were to fail at something that's particularly important to us, or if we were to find ourselves in a particularly complicated, difficult, embarrassing, tough situation, we would discover that there are some edges and the cracks that we need to pay attention to. The corners aren't quite as tight as we'd like to think. So I'd like to pray for us with that in mind over our session together this morning and our conversation throughout the day. Father God, we are indeed people who are in the process of being redeemed. And you have done work in our lives, and we're thankful for that. We are people who believe uh, some of the truths that we're talking about. Uh, But we also recognize that we're people who are in process, and therefore there are aspects of our mind and heart that aren't yet quite submitted, or maybe better put, aren't yet quite aligned with some of these truths that we discover in Romans, particularly in this great little passage in Romans chapter 5. And so we pray that you would bless our time together today as we continue to have some of these conversations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's this uh, old tale that's told in, in the south of India about uh, what it means for a young person to come of age. And according to this old legend, there was this young kid who was kind of in his middle teenage years trying to figure out life. And so he went to a Brahmin. I don't know if you know what that is. It's essentially like a sage within the Indian uh, Hindu culture. And so he goes to this Brahmin, this teacher, and he says, what is of greatest value in life? And the man tells him, well, why don't you go around and ask different people who seem to be happy what is of greatest value and see what they say. And so he thinks that sounds like a pretty good idea. And so he goes out and he sees a a group of mothers who are bathing their children and they look happy. And so he asks them, what is of greatest value in the world? And they say, oh, oh, definitely it's the children because the children will feed you forever. Okay, so he goes along his journey and he sees some goat farmers and they look happy. And so he says, to the goat farmers, what is of greatest value in life? And the goat farmers say, oh, definitely the goats, because it's the goats that help feed the children. Okay? So he goes along his journey, and he sees some people working hard in some physical labor. He says, I just got a question for you guys. What is of greatest value? And the workers say to him, oh, the thing of greatest value is to work, but be sure you don't lose yourself. All right? Continues on his journey and he sees these two, uh, these two people who are clearly in love and they're embracing one another and they just look ever so happy and he says, I have a question for you, what is of greatest value? And of course the lovers say to him, oh love is the greatest value, find someone you love so much that you can lose yourself in this love. And he's getting a little bit frustrated at this point, so finally he goes back to the Brahmin and he says, I asked the question of multiple people who look happy and I got different answers. And the Brahmin says, well then perhaps you're actually asking the wrong question. And the young man says, Well, then what is the right question? And the Brahmin says, well, that's a pretty good place to start. I think sometimes the secret to living well is asking the right questions. And we're asking some questions in our time together. 
we're asking a question, really I've asked myself a question, what do I love about Romans? And it's led me to the question that we're asking together. According to Romans, who are we? Who am I? Who are you? And we're asking this question of this book, and we came up with our first answer, coming out of Romans 5, but really it's something that comes out of Romans as a whole. I am loved in spite of my sin. I want to add a new uh, kind of wrinkle or angle or development on that similar idea. And today I want to talk about the fact that I am justified apart from my accomplishments. Everybody say the word justified. Justified. Now say it one more time like you mean it. Justified. 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 That's the word I actually want to talk about today. I don't know if this is a meaningful word to you. I would imagine it probably is to some degree because you uh, have been studying the book of Romans. I would hope that it becomes a more meaningful word to me, to you. It is a word that didn't mean a whole lot to me even as recent as a decade ago. It has become one of the most important words I know. Justified, apart from my accomplishments. I don't know if you've noticed this yet, but something about Romans requires a second look. There's something about what Paul says in this particular portion of Scripture that God has inspired for us that you don't get the first time you look at it. It's like these old pictures that we had back in the 90s where they're actually technically called stereograms, but they usually were called magic eye pictures. I don't know if you guys know what these are. Have you, have you ever seen these before? You know what I'm talking about? Do you still know? How many of you know what these are? How many of you have never seen one of these before? You don't know what I'm talking about. So basically, it's these pictures. They'd be up on people's walls, and it would look like this. And supposedly, if you look at it closely enough, Um, you'll see different images that jump out at you. Sometimes it works for me, sometimes it doesn't. But like, I remember there's this one, my sister, my older sister had this one hanging up on her wall. And it looked just like this. But if you like look at it and you're just supposed to kind of like look through it and eventually all of a sudden you notice there's like a dolphin who's just, you don't look, nothing you're going to see in that one. So if you're trying right now, apologies, it's going to fail. But that was the idea of the magic eye picture is you, if you just look at it once and walk away, it looks like nothing. But if you continue focusing on it, there is an image that jumps out at you so that you see a little bit something more. Like, how about the 90s, right? <laughs> anyway, um, so Romans is kind of like one of those. And not entirely, but in the sense that the more you look at it, the longer and harder that you look at it, the more that you see. I think Paul knows this, which is why he doesn't count on the fact that we're going to read it over and over and over again. Instead, sometimes what he does, as we talked about, what he does sometimes is he pauses in the middle of this argument and he, he sort of summarizes what he said so far. He restates the truth so that it will sink in deep. That's actually why we're going to look at the same truth two times in a row. And the truth that we're looking at is precisely that kind of dynamic. Romans chapter 5, verses 1-11. through 11, I want to go ahead and read the whole thing again. And I want you to try to listen to the whole thing. And then I'm just going to draw your attention to one detail that's going to serve as, its, as a, uh, a springboard for our conversations today. He says in Romans 5, chapter 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? 
For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received uh, reconciliation. This uh, passage summarizes Paul's argument in both directions. And we talked yesterday about how really what it is, is he's talking about the blessings of justification. We looked at the blessings yesterday. Uh, peace, hope, and especially love. Right now I want to talk about the justification that brings us these various blessings. We can say all day long that we're people who have peace with God, who look forward and hope to a better future, and who actually know that He loves us. But how do we know that these things are accessible to us, if indeed these things are fairly real? So again, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith to this grace, not in which we start, but in which we now stand. Grace is not just the first step of the journey. It is the entire pathway. But that's literally what Paul just got through saying. Like, why repeat yourself, Paul? And I think if Paul could answer us, he would say, because I want it to sink down from your head to your heart. Because we know that there's a difference between knowing something is true in theory, and that truth actually like feeling it in our bones. There's something, but difference between like, yeah, I agree with that, but I really get that. We got to move from, I agree that this is a true thing to yes, and now this is the thing that's going to define me. I heard a pastor talking about a young girl one time who came into his office. She was probably 12, 13 years old, so younger than y'all, but y'all remember being, you know, an early teenager. And uh, his parents, her parents had called him the uh, week before and said, we'd like to bring our daughter in to talk with you. She's just struggling right now. She's having a hard time in school. She's having a hard time in relationships. And she's just kind of always sad. We're wondering if you could speak into her life a little bit. He said, sure, no problem. Bring her over. So they bring her over and sits down and talks to her. And she, uh, you know, it's typical 12, 13-year-old problems. Uh, some of my friends have turned their back on me. And the biggest problem right now is I like this boy, but he likes this other girl. And it's just not going very well for me. And he was very careful not to make fun of her problems. Sometimes I think we make fun of young people's problems. Older people make fun of your problems. You make fun of younger people's problems. Forgetting that like when you're in that world, that matters. You know what I'm saying? Or at least it feels like it does. And um, so he didn't do that at all. Um, but he wanted to speak truth into her. And he had actually just preached a sermon that previous week where he laid out the gospel, kind of like the one we talked about yesterday, about just God loves you even though you're not perfect and, and isn't that wonderful. And, and he was wondering if she'd heard it. So he said, were you in church on Sunday? Yes, I was. Well, did you hear the sermon? Yes, I did. And so he thought to himself, well, I'm just going to kind of reaffirm that truth and it's going to be fine. He said, well, what do you remember from the sermon? And she... He, he was like, this, from a 12-year-old, best, ser- sermon, best summary of my sermon I've ever got. She laid out the gospel as well as you or I could ever hope to lay it out. Clearly, she understood the message. She's talking about how much God loves her, even though she's not perfect, all this stuff. And he said, well, does that make you feel a little bit better about your situation? And this little girl just looked at him like he was crazy. No, did you not hear me? Like, did you, did you forget that, like, I like this boy, but he likes this other girl? I don't know what that has to do with this. Still sad. And he said in that moment, he backed up and recognized that the problem is not that she fails to grasp the concept. The problem is that the truth that she's able to articulate is not being allowed into the center of her identity or her view of the world, her system of values. It has been said that the longest distance in the world is the 15 inches from your head to your heart. And Paul knows this, and this is why he's not willing to leave well enough alone. This is why he's going to risk annoying people by saying the same thing multiple times. 
So taking my cues from Paul, what I want to do is linger in this truth a little bit longer. See, the thing is, the, the truth that Paul, some of you didn't, I don't know, some of you probably are new to the table. Maybe you haven't been studying Romans. The truth that Paul lingers in, in all of chapters 3 and 4 of Romans, is this truth of justification. That God justifies us. Everybody say justify. justify. We're going to say it all day long. Justifies us. Which means he declares us righteous. It's a legal term. He acquits us. He declares us innocent. He, he, you know, in the sort of legal court of our relationship with him, he finds in, your, in our favor. He says, I'm going I'm to go ahead and label you okay with me. I'm going to treat you as an innocent person. So the truth that Paul unpacks and explains in Romans 3 through 4 is that God justifies us, declares us righteous, not on the basis of our good behavior, not on the basis of our moral track record, not on the basis of how much Bible we know, not on the basis of how hard we work to serve Him, but on the basis of His own mercy and grace and of the death and sacrifice of His Son in our place. You actually literally just sang this. Like Drew was in the back, he said, so you guys talked about like making sure the theme of the message and the songs work together, right? And I said, yeah, no. And he thought I was joking because literally you couldn't have picked better songs. You just sang, dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. That's the language of justification. Righteousness and justification are different words in the English. It's literally the same word in the Greek. I am dressed in His righteousness. I wear as a covering the righteousness of Christ over me. And that's why I'm able to stand in His presence and not have to worry about the fact that I'm a super imperfect person. Dressed in His righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. But Paul, who's been teaching this, comes back around and says the same thing again because he recognizes that this may objectively be true, whether or not you believe it. The path to justification is by grace through faith in Jesus who died for you. Whether or not you believe it is true, but he wants you to feel it. It's not just objectively true. He wants it to be subjectively true. It's objectively true that if you hit your toe on a wall or on a corner of a door, it's going to hurt. You become subjectively aware of this when you actually hit your toe on the corner of the wall or the door and you experience the pain. I want to lean into this subjective side. I don't like want you, maybe this is a bad metaphor, I don't want you to stub your toe on the gospel. <laughs> but I want you to be able to move from, all right, I agree with this statement. I still think this is true, whether I've been learning it my whole life or just for a short time. I want you to move from that to, yes, and now this will actually define me. I'm going to tell you up front that you need to make two moves for this to work. I think this language might be somewhat familiar to you. Two steps that begin with a choice and then proceed as we keep choosing them. You have to, first of all, let God's opinion of you define you. And then secondly, you've got to let Christ's death determine God's opinion of you. I want to let that sink in for a minute. If you want to be a person, do you? Real question. You don't have to talk back to me. I know this is probably not the setting in which you're going to feel comfortable talking back. You don't even like saying the word justify over and over and over again. Do you want to be a person that does more than just go through the motions spiritually? Do you want to be a person that's capable of enduring difficulty for your faith? Do you want, do you want to be someone who, when you hear stories of people giving their lives for Jesus, it actually makes perfect sense to you because you'd be willing to do the same thing? Do you want to be a person that doesn't need to be defensive when you fail or when someone makes fun of you because you're actually stable enough in who you are in the Lord that you're okay? Do you want deep and lasting peace that starts now and stretches through eternity? Do you want to get why Jesus 
would give up heaven to come to earth and what that has to do with you. If you want to, you've got to take both of these steps. Both of them. Everybody say both. Both of them. All of our inner turmoil is connected to denying one or both of these. And I think if you've been around like church for a while, you've probably gotten good at one of these. If you believe the second one, but not the first one. I'm going to let Christ's death determine God's opinion of me. But you don't actually believe the first one. That God's opinion of me is what defines me. You probably find the gospel kind of boring. Kind of like, alright, yeah, I get it, it's true, whatever. But it actually doesn't shape your emotional life very much. Because it just feels irrelevant. It's detached from what you're really pursuing. Which is a sense of yourself based on your career or your relationships or your track record or a view of yourself or whatever it might be. On the other hand, if you believe the first one but not the second one, if you believe that God's opinion of you defines you, but you've not allowed Christ's death to determine God's opinion of you, you're probably well acquainted with guilt and shame and hiding from the Lord. You may go to church, you may come to the table, you even showed up at the retreat, but you probably don't like God very much. You probably don't really want to be... You sing the songs because you believe they're true and you think you're supposed to, but you don't actually like feel it at a very deep level because God for you is very important. But He just won't accept you. He won't let you in as you are. You, it's got to be both. I don't want either tragedy for you or for me. So we've got to work through this. Again, the key word here is justification. That's our thing. Declared righteous. You'll be treated as an innocent person. No more proof is required for you to be welcomed into God's presence and allowed into the community of faith. I wonder if it would be helpful in taking this seriously if we remember the situation of the, uh, of the initial recipients of this letter. Paul writes this letter to the Romans in A.D. 57. It's been a long time. Fifth, the year 57. Let me paint the picture of the situation for you a little bit. So they're in Rome, of course, which is the center of the empire. And there was a tense relationship between Romans and Jews. They didn't typically like the Jews. So in the year... I mean, it's just a, not, a, not a super deep history lesson, but a couple of numbers for you. In the year 49... we got a history major. In the year 49... Uh, Claudius, the emperor of Rome, expelled all the Jews from Rome. Y'all got to go. Get out of here. And that meant also that the Jewish Christians had to leave. And so you have this church that's probably about 15 years old, and it's going to be mostly Jewish. Certainly the leaders, the long-standing members are going to be Jewish, and so it's got a real Jewish flavor to it. But all the Jewish Christians have to leave in 49 AD. So then all the Gentiles, uh, they're looking at each other going like, oh, we got to pick up the pieces and figure this thing out. And so the Jews are gone for five years. In 54, you got a new emperor, his name is Nero. I know he got crazy later, but he actually was fine at the start. He allowed the Jews back in. So then these Jewish Christians come back in. Well, it's been five years. The Gentiles have figured out how to do church, and they kind of like things better this way. Like, they kind of like having bacon at the church breakfast on Saturday morning. You know what I'm saying? And then the Jews come back, and now you got some Jewish Christians, and you got some Gentile Christians. And it's not that they're, like, totally opposed to each other, but there's a little bit of tension between the two. And they're trying to figure out, like, not just do we get to eat bacon and sausage at our breakfasts, but, like, how, how do we know if, if God is pleased with you? Like, what do I have to do in order to be a person that's pleasing to Him? Do I have to keep your customs? Do I have to stop keeping my customs? And so there's this multiple layers to this. They're trying to figure out, how do we know we're right with God? And how do I know that you're right with God? Like, at what point should I just let you live? Or do I need to, like, rebuke you for various things? These are the things that they're trying to figure out. And that's what justification is all about. On what basis does God declare us righteous? 
And therefore, on what basis should we accept one another as being right with God? And Paul's answer, now and forevermore, is that you are justified, you are righteous, because you are covered in Christ by faith, by trusting that his death counts for yours, by grace through faith, by grace through faith, by grace through faith. It's not about whether or not you keep the Old Testament, all the laws. It's not about whether you come up with your own specific moral code that's going to protect you from sin. They come in later, sometimes for wisdom purposes, other times not, but they're not the point. The point is that you're justified by grace through faith in Jesus who died for your sins. And maybe some of you are thinking, I mean, any number of things you might be thinking. Maybe you're thinking to yourself, yeah, cool, like, I don't know, I'm here, but I'm not really a religious person. This sounds like a super religious thing. Maybe you're thinking, I get it, like, this is a super important thing for people who've done a lot of bad things so that they don't feel bad about them. I've not done a lot of bad things, so, like, I'm fairly secure, and this justification thing just isn't for me. I need to impress upon you that justification is not just a some of us thing. It's not just a religious thing. It's not just the thing that the bad people need. It's an everybody thing. Because the desire to be justified is hardwired into the human psyche. Think about the small ways that we use the word. We talk about, you know, justified vacations and justified purchases and justified naps. I took a long nap yesterday, but, but I, it's okay, I earned it. Because I've been working hard, you know what I'm saying? It's justified. The question in all these cases is, have I done enough to earn this? And if you look closely enough, you'll realize that we actually do this with our lives as a whole. Sometimes it's beneficial to see how this plays out in the lives of other people. Uh, Let's talk about some uh, some different characters, fictional and otherwise. Y'all know the movie Creed. You've seen Creed, right? Creed is so, I like Creed. I like Creed too. Love him. How many of you guys have seen the old Rocky movies? Oh, a few of you have. How many of you know who Rocky is? Sylvester Stallone, the spider, yeah. So Rocky is a fascinating character because his heart is always, he's going to take a beating more than anybody else. Why? We actually get a glimpse into his character in these lines from the movie. I'll read it down here. You can look at it up there if you want to. I think it's probably up there. Uh, Here is, uh, there's a line from the actual movie Rocky. Uh, He's about to fight Apollo Creed, which is, you know, Michael B. Jordan's dad (laughs) in the movies. He says, and here's here's the quote. He says, I'm not going to try to do it in a Rocky accent because I can't do accents to save my life. Sometime the guys should bring my wife here to preach and to speak, and she can just have her do some accents. She's wonderful. I'm just going to read it. He says, all I want to do is go the distance. Nobody's ever gone the distance with Creed. And if I can go that distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. What's he saying? He's saying, I want my life to mean something, man. I want to feel worthy. I want to feel accepted. I want to know that my, like, I'm worth my space in flesh and bone. Maybe you think to yourself, yeah, well, that's Rocky. He's like not exactly a picture of mental health. And he's a fictional character. It's not just fiction. You guys know the name Ronda Rousey? She's not as popular anymore because she's retired from fighting, but she's uh, one of the most, this is, I think women fighting is a weird thing. We can talk about that later, I guess. But she's the most successful female MMA fighter of all time up to this point. And she had been undefeated and she seemed fairly invincible, but then she lost a fight. And I remember reading a write-up about her in ESP, and this is just some of the snippets from the article uh, that I thought was fascinating. Notice the psychology that's at play. So here's uh, starting underneath the, um, uh, let's look at the heading. USC fighter Ronda Rousey says she considered suicide after her surprise bantamweight title defeat to Holly Holm in November. Here's the, here was some of the article. The 29-year-old was knocked out in the second round after a blow to the head. Honestly, my thought in the medical room was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? She told the Ellen DeGeneres show. I was sitting there thinking about killing myself in that second. I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do? 
Do you hear that pain? This is, if I don't have this, what do I have? So her, she said it was her boyfriend, Travis Brown, that helped her through the dark times. I looked up and saw my man, Travis, was standing there. I'm looking up at him and I was just like, I need to have his babies. I need to stay alive. I don't know if I would have made it without him. Notice, like, she's got to find something. Like, it was being undefeated, and then she lost that, so it's like, I got a new thing. I got to have that man's babies. But there's this sense in which I have to find something to justify. Even then, maybe you're like, yeah, well, again, these people fight for a living. So, bad examples. Let me show you another one. I don't know if you guys would recognize the name Sidney Pollack, but he was a successful director. Uh, in Hollywood for a number of decades. He actually died over 10 years ago. But just before he died, an article came out that talked about how he was very sick and he was dying, but he just couldn't stop working, even when his family pleaded. Please stop. You're making it worse. You're shortening life. We want to spend time with you. He just couldn't do it. And he actually explains, uh, looking up there, look at the second line. Oh, we'll just start at the top. Movie mogul Sidney Pollack fears he'll never retire because he couldn't justify his existence if he stopped making films. The 70-year-old director says that although the grueling filmmaking process makes him frustrated and insecure, he needs it to learn about himself and to find his reason for living. He explains, every time I finish a picture, I feel like I've done what I'm supposed to do in the sense that I've earned my stay for another year or so. If I don't know what use I, ha- I, don't know what use I have other than that, if I don't make movies, what the hell do I do? That is the desire for justification. It's not just successful people either. I don't know you guys, if you guys are familiar with the name Elizabeth Wurzel. Is that a name that rings a bell for you? She wrote for New York Times for a long, long time. She actually just died a couple of months ago uh, in her early 50s. She wrote a book about uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago called Prozac Nation. And it talked about the, how uh, you know, pres- uh, antidepressant pills and medications and whatnot have become such a, such a feature of our life. She herself struggled with depression her whole life. And she says some of the most insightful things I've ever heard about depression. This is not all that depression is, but I think it's fascinating. Anyway, she says, in a strange way, I had fallen in love with my depression. I loved it because I thought it was all I had. I thought depression was the part of my character that made me worthwhile. Made me worthwhile. I thought so little of myself. Felt that I had such scant offerings to give to the world that the one thing that justified my existence at all was my agony. Guys, there are so many ways of framing this up. So many, so many flavors of justification by works. Usually we don't actually say the words, I'm trying to justify my existence. We say, one more and that'll be enough. One more book read, one more new friend, one more good grade, one more admirer, one more compliment, one more internship, one more job offer, one more good week one more successful day, and then I'll be fine. Then I'll be likable. Then I'll be secure. Then people will be impressed. Then God will like me. Then I'll be enough. We say things like, man, I could lose everything else, but as long as I have this. I know this isn't your world, but sometimes if we, you know, I'll share my specific, and maybe it'll connect to your specific. Y'all, I talked about how much I love being a dad. It's also terrifying. And this is it for me. I'll find myself saying, listen, I could lose everything else, but as long as my kids turn out loving Jesus. That's a heck of a lot of pressure for little kids to bear. <laughs> that my sense of self is built on whether or not they follow Jesus. If I don't correct that, then, then I'm going to ruin them. We try to justify ourselves in these various ways. 
some time ago, it's not just famous people. Some time ago, I heard this woman at our church named Dana tell her story. She joined the church staff, and before that, she had a career in medicine, and she was talking about how she spent her 20s and your 30s. This is the season y'all are in and are about to head into. She spent her 20s and her 30s working all the time. She gave me permission to share this, by the way. And as she unpacked this, she articulated some of the deepest the most perceptive self-analysis I've ever heard. It's simple, but it's rich. She said it was like I was fed by success. Hear what she's saying. It's not just a dead metaphor. My food, the thing that gives me sustenance, the thing that keeps me going, is that I keep being successful. She said I worked to feel important. I wonder if sometimes that's why we keep ourselves so busy and talk about our busyness. That's this. See, I don't think the question is if we seek justification but how? That's what I think we need to see if we're going to be able to take the truth of Romans from here, our head, to here, our heart. And I do want to go beneath the obvious, beneath I work too much or I you know, care too much about relationships or I'm probably too busy or my life is about my kids or I want to be successful. Okay, like let's get past the cliches though. Let's dig a little deeper. Like why do you want to be successful? Why are you so busy? What are you after? It's not terribly difficult to come up with labels that the subcultures throw at you. But maybe it's not as, maybe, and maybe that's as deep as you need to go. I don't know, but maybe you need to go further. Like, what is it that you look at to prove your worth? That's what this is really about. What makes you feel okay with being alive, with existing? Let me give you two questions. I want to think about them now. I'm going to actually encourage you all to talk about them in your groups later on. I think the two questions that we may need to be able to ask and answer to diagnose this is, whose approval am I seeking? And how am I trying to get it? Maybe it's a father. Maybe it's a mother. Maybe it's the absence of a father or mother. Maybe it's an older sibling. Maybe it's a boyfriend, girlfriend. Maybe it's some kid in junior high that you literally don't even remember. But if you're honest, that you remember. You don't know why you remember. You, I should, I mean, let me run that back. Maybe it's a kid in junior high that like, wasn't even that much a part of your life. I'm thinking about a story. I remember, I'm thinking about an experience I had with a young guy a few years ago. He was in, I think he was a sophomore, junior in high school, and he said, when I was in seventh grade, um, these kids made fun of me because I was wearing white socks. Who wears white socks? I'd never heard that this was a thing. But they were making fun of him. And he was like, it doesn't really bother me, though. I mean, I've never worn white socks since then, but it doesn't really bother me, though. (laughs) Sweet, sweet young man. You're not paying attention to what's going on in your heart. Who is it that you're trying to impress? And on what basis? How are you trying to get their approval? How are you trying to earn that out of boy? For some of you, it is being busy or it's being active or being productive in a general sense. I'm guessing, you know, not like, although some of you, maybe some of you are film people probably, but for most of you, it's not like producing movies, but it's just being productive. You need visible evidence of your effort. And if you're going to bed and you can look back and recognize that you accomplished some items on your to-do list, or there's some tangible way in which your work manifested something, then you're okay. But if not, you feel dejected. You feel worthless. For others of you, it's not so much being productive. Maybe it's being attractive. You don't care so much about what you accomplish. You just care about who's looking at you and what they're seeing. And if enough people or the right person thinks you're desirable, you figure you must be desirable. But if no one is looking at you or if the one person you want to see you doesn't see you, it crushes you. For others, it's knowing If you know enough, you're good. You'd never say it like this, 
But you just, you're the, you're the one who knows. Maybe you just know everything. Maybe you're a Jeopardy kid. You know what I'm saying? Maybe you like know more about college basketball statistics than anybody needs to. Maybe you know more about the Bible and that makes you feel so good. Oh, y'all quoted John 3.16? Well, do you know what John 3.17 says? God, aren't you proud of me? You know? It's knowing. For still others, maybe it's winning. Full disclosure, this is me. I just want to be the best at whatever it is that I'm doing. In my flesh, that's my desire. I just want to know that I'm better than everybody else. Even if it's a really, really particular thing, that's my sin. I want to win, whether it's, you know, not anymore. Back in the day, whether it was a sport thing, whether it's an academic thing, maybe for some of you it's like a humor thing. You're the funniest person in the room, and as long as you can make them laugh, then it's all good. For still others, it's helping. Well, what's wrong with helping? Well, theoretically, nothing, unless you're looking at helping to tell you that you're a worthwhile person. You want to make an impact. You want people's lives to be better because you're here. You need to help people to justify you being alive. You ever said to yourself, you know, I could lose everything and not be successful, but if I just know that the world is a kinder place because I'm in it, then I'll be okay. I don't know if you can love people if beneath your desire to be kind to them is this need for you to somehow prove that everything is okay. So what about you? Like, what's your thing? How do you try to justify the oxygen that you consume? Please understand, y'all, this isn't some sort of like psychobabble. This is uh, not a thing that therapy will fix. This is a psychological symptom of a much deeper spiritual disease. And this is the way most of our world works. You've got to measure up. You've got to get the grades. You've got to pad the resume. You've got to be pretty enough. You've got to outshine the rest. And then I will like you or love you or hire you or choose you or want to be around you. And maybe that's why we can't actually help but sometimes think about God in the same way. Some of you are still in this mindset, not always, but at least some of the time where you think that God's actually mad at you most of the time because you don't read your Bible enough or because you don't, you know, attend the table consistently enough or because you don't share your faith often enough. You think that God is, like, fundamentally, not just, like, upset about some of the things you're doing. You think that fundamentally He rejects you unless you can keep the list that He has for you. That's still your framework for God. And it's instinctive because like everybody else treats us like that. So we think God's saying, just clean things up a little bit and then maybe we can talk. And you need to understand that God does not operate that way, at least not according to Romans. That's literally what justification by grace through faith means. This is why Tim Keller says that Christians aren't just people who repent of their sins. Christians are people who repent of their justifications. The Bible is addressed to people who have some interest in God. And the first step, as you well know, is getting rid of the garbage, getting rid of the junk. I've appreciated, even in conversation with some of you, you've been very open and sharing about seasons in your life where you just were involved in obvious and rank sin. And you got rid of it. Awesome. That's, that's step one. But you're not done grow. You're not done like accepting the gospel. Like next step is you let go of the things that you hold on to to try to make God like you and favor you, and help you. I want you to notice the pattern. Justification by works tells you that you have to do good so that you can be good so that maybe someday God will love you. And Romans 5 tells us that God doesn't operate that way, that your existence matters because God loved you first, that Christ proved your worth, that He is your justification. Justification by grace is the exact opposite of justification by works. You've been declared righteous. You've been given a new status before God on the basis of grace that you didn't earn, that you just received by trusting in Him. That's the pattern. 
God accepts you because of Jesus. And when you realize this and stop trying to earn His favor, you become a person who does good. It's not that your lives don't matter. Not at all. It's that there is a way in which this transformation takes place from the inside out. We've seen in Romans 1 that Paul is very clear about the nature of the problem. That you replace God and therefore everything becomes chaotic. Here he's very clear about the solution. The answer to the world's problems, yours included, begins by rejecting justification by works and receiving justification by grace through faith in Jesus. So what do you do? What do you do? You stop trying to justify your existence. Either by earning God's favor or measuring up to some standard in the world or in your own head, you stop. But you don't turn inward, you turn toward Jesus. You don't say, I don't need to be ashamed because I'm good enough, strong enough, and everything's okay. No, you say, I don't need to be ashamed because Christ is good enough, strong enough, He invites me in. You realize that this applies to you. So let me come back and end with the statements we began with. The only things you need to know to be a person who experiences deep and lasting peace is number one, you've got to let God's opinion of you define you. Number two, you've got to let Christ's death determine God's opinion of you. Or maybe we should just simplify this. You let the cross tell you who you are. That's Romans 5. That's the gospel of Romans answering the question, who am I? You let the cross tell you who you are. I want one more thing to show you what this looks like, and then we'll be done. One of my models in life is, when you're not sure if you've said it well, uh, let Charlie Brown say it for you. I think a lot of what we need to learn in life, we can learn from this little, uh, little bozo and his friends. You know, in this case, let's talk about Linus. Y'all know who Linus is? Linus is the character who's always kicking it. He's always around. He's known for his striped shirt. And what else does he always have? His blanket. Literally, where we get the phrase security blanket. If you've never seen the show, first of all, I need to talk to your parents. Secondly, (laughs) everywhere Linus goes, you need to know, everywhere he goes, he carries that blue blanket. Can't take it from him. Snoopy tries to take it from him. People try to tell him to put it down. Sally tries to get it. Not happening. You can laugh at him all you want. Why are you carrying around a blanket? He doesn't care. He's not going to let the thing go. Without it, he wouldn't feel like himself. He'd be exposed. He'd be vulnerable. The same way most of us will feel if we let go of the ways we justify ourselves. But one time he dropped it. You may or may not have noticed this in the past, though you've likely seen it before. It's probably his most famous scene. It's in the Christmas special. Charlie can't figure out the meaning of Christmas. So finally Linus takes over. Take a look at this.
You notice it, yeah? So when he announces the impact of Jesus' entry into the world, the blanket hits the floor. So what do we do with Romans 5 and the truth that we're justified by grace through faith apart from our accomplishments or our moral performance? You drop your security blankets once and for all, and you let your lives tell the story of grace. Father God, it is important for us to hear the word spoken over us. May your voice be the one we hear. We also know, God, that uh, hearing it said to us is a critical, though small, part of taking it seriously. So, as these as students prepare to have some conversations about some of these things, and as they look forward to a lot of fun today and some just goofiness and some kicking it and some all sorts of things. Pray, God, that you would sanctify the next, uh, next few moments, however long it is, in the conversations. Give them perceptive eyes to see under the hood of their hearts and give them the courage to speak. It's probably going to be that point where they've said a decent bit and then they're holding back that one last thing. I pray, God, that they would say the one last thing, that they would risk it. Because your cross, your death, your justification enables us to risk. Um, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.